As I started to think about <clears throat> the sermon that I was going to write this week, I thought, well, the collect that we read every year on the Sunday before Christ the King. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, dot, dot, dot. So I thought, well, okay. All Holy Scriptures have been given for our learning. Today, the first reading from Samuel is about a woman who's been trying to have a baby for ages and can't, and her husband loves her more than his other wife, who's had all the children by, and the other wife is jealous because of this, has been ragging on her for a long time, and she's very upset. We have in the epistle a very abstruse and tightly reasoned explication of the once and for all nature of the sacrifice of Christ and how his priesthood is definitive for our understanding of what has occurred. And finally, in Mark's gospel, Jesus has given us the encouraging news that we're going to continue to have wars and famines and apocalyptic disasters in the world. And so now we need to read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest all of this. And we should, and we can, and that is the good news. Remember my, my teacher and friend, O.C. Edwards, said it isn't important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. So you and I need to know some things about these readings because contained in them is both a foretaste of the season of Advent that's about to come up and also the idea of the possibility of being a hopeful person in the midst of what appears to be great calamity and anxiety. So let's go through these readings and see what sense we can make out of them. First Samuel has a reading uh, about Hannah, who is a very great figure in Israel. And you heard the story read to you about her unfortunate circumstances. And it is something that has a good ending, doesn't it? Because she ultimately does conceive, and she has a son, and his name is Samuel. And Samuel is one of the great prophets of Israel. And Samuel is going to be the one who, in his early life, is a young uh, a boy and a young man is going to disclose the corruption of the, temp of the shrine at Shiloh, and Eli and his sons are going to be turned out, and Samuel will be the one who will anoint King David and will be responsible for creating him as king and the period in the history of the people of Israel that will be looked back upon by the people in the time of Jesus as their great days. And their earnest hope and expectation is that the Messiah is going to bring back to Israel those great days and complete now the return from exile, the sense of alienation and lostness from God. And this story 
that they will look at will be about God's generative power bringing life to what was considered barren. And so you can interpret this text to be good news for Hannah and the fact that things turned out all right for her and her prayers were answered. And it can be also a reading that you would use for your own understanding of God's abiding presence in your life and that God's abundance is always present even if you and I have great difficulty in seeing it and have lived for a long time with the view that it cannot possibly be so. And this is a biblical affirmation of the fact that God abundance is the default position and that life and new understanding of God's purposes for us are always possible. Now between the reading from 1 Samuel and the reading from the epistle to the Hebrews we sang as a canticle as an interval between the Old Testament reading and the reading from Hebrews a, a reading from Samuel again. It's the song of Hannah, her thanksgiving for what has happened to her. And I don't know those of you who've been around uh, the Episcopal Church a little bit or maybe have just been to church and heard this stuff over and over again. It sounds not unlike another canticle that we say in church or sing called the Magnificat, the Song of Mary in Luke's Gospel. Gee, do you think Luke may have read anything in 1 Samuel before this canticle was written? Right? The sense of connection that Mary now is speaking about the fulfillment that she has felt and her connection with God. There's something else about both these canticles and about Hannah's response in the reading. And that is that Hannah's focus was not just on self. You know, most of us today talk about having our families as part of self-fulfillment. Hannah wasn't thinking about self-fulfillment only. She was thinking about the blessing that was going to be upon Israel as the result of the birth of this boy. The people of Israel, the people of the New Testament period, did not think of the self as you and I think of the self. They saw, thought of themselves in the first place as in relationship to the whole of the community, you know? And so it's important because in a culture where the autonomous self is the highest value, it's very hard for us to think about somebody who would be thinking beyond themselves and their own self-fulfillment. All relationship requires the giving up of self. And you and I need to make a decision on a daily basis about how much self we're going to give up do we do it to the point where we don't know where we begin and end and other people begin and end? In an amusing way, I've told you many times about the New Yorker cartoon many years ago. This couple are sitting in a restaurant 
And the guy looks over at his wife and he says, I can't remember, is it you or me that doesn't like asparagus? <laughs> is that where we ought to be headed? Or do we understand somehow our sense of self to be the right and healthy kind, but also to understand that in order to be effective human beings, we need to know how to give of self when it's called for. So the biblical text, read, learn, mark, inwardly digest, this is where these things can take you as you begin to think about what it is that you're listening to. How Hannah had sort of a two ways of understanding this. Somehow the answer to prayer, some affirmation, some belief in the abundant power of God's presence. And you and I, when we read this text, can believe and see that and own that and know that as part of the good news. And at the same time to realize that once we have received those blessings, that they're not just for our own edification, but they're to be in some way given away. You know, the most effective Christian witness is figuring out how you can give away that which you have received that you know is life-giving. And every one of us should pray for the day when somebody will ask us out of the blue, how do I get what you have? I've been watching you. I've noticed how you function. I notice how you are in the world. And I respect and admire it, and I'd like to know what it is you, you, do, you do, how you do that. And you will have an evangelical moment, my friends, of the best kind. So we segue from the canticle, the song of Hannah, into the reading from the Hebrews. And the author here is talking about the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, but also speaking about something that has been affected by what it is that Jesus has done. Remember, when you and I think about the cross and its centrality to Christianity, when we think about the sacrifice of Christ, when we think about Christ's self-giving, it cannot be understood any of those things apart from the totality of his life and ministry because it was by that process that the apostles and the disciples who were the eyewitnesses saw him and said to themselves, I understand now in depth what this means. Not just because I witnessed him die on the cross, but because prior to that, what he said and what he did has given me some tools that I can use to be the best human being that I can be, to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love in the world that it is possible for me to do that. And so the suffering, while maybe essential or part of the way we understand this mystery, is also just one of many things that leads us to a deeper and fuller understanding of the work of Christ. And what the author is speaking about today in Hebrews is that Jesus affected what we preach and teach continuously, that God unconditionally accepts, loves, and forgives us. Because it says today in this reading that as the result of this, all of our misdeeds 
all of the things that we have done that we're not proud of, all of the things anybody has ever done that we're not proud of are forgiven. In the ancient Near East, we'd say covered. And so you and I need to spend, I guess, a lot of our life believing that. Because I don't know about you, but we've all done some things we really wish we hadn't. So when we speak about God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness, we have the guarantee today in the epistle to the Hebrews, and you and I have to learn how to live into that and grow into that. Somehow, the mighty works of Jesus Christ have saved us. And you've heard me say over and over again that in the original languages, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek New Testament, that the word to save in both languages also means to heal. So that means that your salvation is wrapped up in some way with the process of God's healing generative powers in you and in your relationships as they become more healthy. So read, mark, learn, inwardly digest that this is the process that is outlined in today in the epistle to the Hebrews, and it says in there further that we need to hold one another up as the community of faith as we live, and that you become now an instrument of holding up other people outside of the church as you are able to bring health and wholeness to the relationships that you're part of. That that is the way in which we make it real in the world. Now in Mark's gospel, you know, there are a lot of Christians still around who believe that you and I should be constantly on our toes and on the qui vive, as my family would have said, about the world coming to an end. Right? It's going to happen any minute. We're in, there's going to be some apocalyptic event, some kind of divine ethnic cleansing, and we need to be ready. We need to be ready because if we're not, there could be trouble. And plenty of it! You know? Usually, by the way, uh, the people who are strong on this use as great support uh, the Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, right? Let me say this to you again. I do from time to time. The people who wrote the book of Revelation, the community that heard it read to them or read it for the first time, and those communities which read this work around the community out of which it emerged understood and knew all about what it meant. It was no mystery. They knew what all the symbols meant. They knew what all the names meant. They knew what it was referring to. It was not some mystery that was going to be revealed by Hal Lindsey in the late, great planet Earth. Please. Please. 
So somehow we have to make sense of the apocalyptic imagery and what it might mean. So here's some things about this reading from Mark's Gospel. And you can read and understand this in more than in one way. Read, mark, learn, inwardly digest. Father Emerson said in seminary when he was there, uh, they read this collect, you know, read, comma, mark, comma, learn, comma. And sometimes they take the comma out from between read and mark. So read, mark. So we are, aren't we, today? And we're reading something about what uh, Mark may have to say. Here is the situation on the ground with the writing of Mark's gospel. It's important to know this. Remember, whenever you read anything that where Jesus says anything in the New Testament, what did he mean? What did the church community who wrote it down and passed it on mean? And what do you and I do with this and mean by it in our own day and time? So today, we have a couple of things to say. First of all, Mark is the earliest of the, of the Gospels in the New Testament. And so that means it was written probably about 75 A.D. In 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. They came into Jerusalem and burned it down. This beautiful temple, destroyed, reduced to rubble. So you can't imagine that somebody in the time of Mark's, the writing of Mark's gospel, who was in Jerusalem would have said, gee, these are pretty big stones. They were all rubble. So when Mark's gospel was written, they knew what had come to pass. And maybe they felt the world had come to an end. So these words of Jesus, if they were uttered before the destruction of the temple, as a prediction, would now have been understood in a new way by the community that wrote Mark's gospel and those eyewitnesses who had heard those words uttered now 40 years before. It would be vested with a great and far deeper meaning. There will be wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, all of which had been experienced by the community out of which Mark's gospel emerged. What this gospel is about for us today, the reader now, is how do you and I cope with change, disaster, catastrophe? What sense do we make? How do we learn to be less anxious in the midst of the adversity that we face? Because it continues. Now, some people have had difficulty with this, and so did some of the people in Mark's time, because they said, you know what? Jesus said he was going to come again. Forty years out, he's not here. So what sense are we going to make of this? Does this mean that maybe our thinking about some kind of an apocalyptic moment from outside is not the way we understand this? but God's redemptive work within human history? Does this mean that when we understand the, re the resurrection, does this mean when we understand all of the good things about God's presence in the world, that it happens within human history, and more to the point that you and I have a role to play in every age? 
and that as we have a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes, we put this kind of apocalypticism in perspective. And it's not that we're waiting to be swept up into some cloud cuckoo land to understand what it is. We're going to understand what it is now as we live. For some reason at the sermon discussion today, we got into a conversation about heaven and hell, you know. And somebody quoted the great Swiss theologian of the last century, Karl Barth, who said, I believe there is a hell, but I just don't know whether there's anybody in it. Which is sort of my sentiments, to be absolutely honest. And that gave rise to somebody's comment, which my family used to say, maybe people in your family used to say, or you heard from people, you know, sometimes people can make their own hell on earth. I've seen it. Have you? And maybe some of this apocalyptic stuff is really talking about what's present and that God's saving power is available to each of us in the midst of all of this adversity and difficulty. Practical wisdom is the accumulated response that you and I have developed to adversity and the challenges and opportunities in front of us as we live. And those opportunities provide us with the ability now to cope and to tell others how that might work for them. That is the process of spiritual maturity because these wisdom learnings come both mentally, emotionally, and spiritually to each human being. The Eastern Orthodox Church refers to this process as a couple of ways, as theosis or deification. That as we become more mature, better human beings, more spiritually centered, we become less unlike God. We are not God, but our true self is God as Father Thomas Keating says. And this is what we learn. So maybe rather than focus on the reading from Mark's Gospel as predictive of some, oh no, Star Trek moment, that we begin to see that you and I need to become less anxious in the midst of change. This is a chronically anxious culture. I don't know the complete reason for this, and I'm sure you don't either, but I suspect some of it has to do with the rapidity of change. And it is very hard to cope. As much as we teach ourselves that we need to be strong, we need to be able to do this, change is tough. And sometimes the other thing that we don't do when we think about change is that change produces loss. And some of the things that the change has produced that we don't have anymore, that we have lost, are real losses. Some things about our common life together and how we understand it and what we do in relationship to one another, it is a real loss. And it is right to be sad about it and maybe figure out how some species of it can return in a more healthful and life-giving way. 
but there are a lot of things that have gone and been replaced by who knows what, not an improvement. I say this on a daily basis, struggling not to become a curmudgeon, right? One of the losses, I think, is a certain species of cultural literacy which uh, we no longer have in common or share in common with one another. And that is a tragedy in my view. I don't know how to get it back. The horse is out of the barn, but it's there, isn't it? So Jesus is preparing us for this and saying to the community that he taught, this is going to happen now as you follow me. There's going to be change and anxiety. And to Mark's community, they said, you know what? Most of us who followed him originally and the eyewitnesses that we all knew, we may be related to, they were Jews. And now I go to my church uh, and I see that the 80% of it's Gentile. What kind of sense am I going to make of that? Should these people be in? They have customs and ways of being and speaking and acting that are not the same as me. And I was originally taught we're not supposed to have anything to do with that. And now I have to struggle with the reality that not only do I think I need to, I've actually heard some wisdom from these people. And what sense am I to make out of that? So the assurance, of course, is that if we agree to move with the Savior on the way, we will gain the tools and the abilities to understand more deeply and more fully God's purposes for us. So this week, give thanks with Hannah for God's abundant generative power in every aspect of our life. Give thanks with the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews that the community of faith is there to hold each of us up that Jesus Christ unconditionally accepts, loves, and forgives us, that is the promise of the gospel, and that God's power is with us as we move through change and anxiety to help us with the processes that we need to be helped with to become more effective and to make a difference in the world. Amen.